Hi, I'm Eric. I'm Corey. I'm Josh. And I'm Lee. And this is Technically Pop. <laughs> and we are we are we are a little rusty here. Great start. Great start. But we're here to talk about the Matrix resurrections. And I think Josh, you were gonna maybe give us a little background on what the Matrix is. <laughs> the thing is, Corey, you can't be told what the Matrix is. <laughs> you have to see it for yourself. But I'll I'll do my best here. So if you weren't around in 99 when the original joint dropped, or if you haven't rewatched it in a minute, uh, The Matrix is a pretty sweet film about the world <laughs> being a simulation, uh, a computer program that is designed to pacify and just keep humanity uh, contentedly unaware of the fact that they are basically being harvested uh, by machines that we are sort of batteries uh it stars keanu reeves carrie Ann moss Lawrence fishburne it's directed by the wachowskis and it, it spawned two initial sequels and now a third uh what a lot of people are calling a legacy sequel and in the matrix universe uh, there is a, a lot of amazing um tropes some of which are are pretty well worn like the idea of the one or the chosen one uh, the idea of fate and destiny versus free will and choice. There's a lot of biblical imagery, um, the kind of the Christ trope, the messianic trope. There's a lot of uh, cyberpunk. There's a lot of guns, a lot of guns. And all of this stuff is a, a sort of amazing melange that came together in this huge hit movie and and there was sort of diminishing returns with with the next two movies um they were not received as well although as you guys will find out if you don't know already i am a pretty big sequels defender so um, we can argue about that if necessary but essentially in this universe uh it's a dystopian landscape where you have a digital and and physical sort of binary or divide right the real world is sort of blasted to hell and the sky has been scorched and it's very stormy. And then the digital world can be whatever the program uh, is, it, you know, whatever your imagination uh, makes it or whatever the machines program it to be. And so humans can uh, uh, jack in, as they say, or out, they get plugged into the program. They can get freed from the program, freed from the matrix. And of course this became a fixture of our pop culture. And after a long, um, you know, lapse from 2003 when um, the Matrix Revolutions came out, Lana Wachowski, at the behest of, as the movie puts it, uh, her beloved parent company, Warner Brothers, has made a new movie, The Matrix Resurrections, keeping that alliteration of the R words for what it's worth going. So uh, hopefully that gets us into just the gist of it. So maybe let's go around and find out how did the rest of you feel about The Matrix as a film, as a, uh, you know, the Wachowskis filmography, maybe more broadly. I, I personally 
loved it and and like the sequels they're obviously not as good as the original but i did enjoy them a lot i have owned them on dvd for many years but how about the rest of you obviously there's video games there was merchandise uh the wachowskis have gone on to make a bunch of other movies what's what's everybody's feeling on the matrix in general i love the matrix i was too young to see it in theaters i first heard of the matrix and first heard of the wachowskis from I think kids who are slightly older than me or kids who had slightly more permissive parents. And it was like, there's this awesome R rated movie. You need to see it. And I think I saw it on TV maybe, or at a friend's house for the first time. And I think it's amazing. I've seen everything else. The Wachowskis have made other than their first movie bound. Is that the title of their first movie? Yeah. And I love it all. Speed Racer in particular, like <laughs> I will watch Speed Racer at any time in any situation and weep. <laughs> and uh, the, the the Matrix is still my my favorite, though. And it's the sort of thing where like whenever I'm home at my parents house and my dad is just channel surfing, the Matrix will come up and we will sit together and watch it on TV or whatever. Like, that's just something that happens. It's a ritual we have. So, yes, I was. I had some trepidation at the idea of a Lego sequel, but was really excited to watch it. And I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I, I was old enough to see the, I mean, I was old enough to get into the theater to see the original in the theater. I don't think I was old enough to buy the ticket myself, but um, uh, I, I did see it in, in the theater. And yeah, it was, I was sort of skeptical of it going in because I don't know if you all know this about me, but you know, as a young person, I was a bit of a cinephile. I liked films, not movies, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> thank you for laughing. Uh, so, you know, I was a little suspicious when, like, I, a, a friend was like, we have to go see this movie. I just saw this movie. We need to all go see it. And, and yeah, like, everything Josh said about it in his great little capsule introduction uh, is, is true. It's like, I never seen anything like that in, in, in a movie before. Uh, the way it looked, the way it sounded the way the action was, was put together and, and filmed. Like I, I just, it like, it, it, yeah, it, it just, it changed like what I could expect from a movie in, in, in lots of ways. I did not appreciate the sequels at the time. I, you know, I, I remember being very, very excited about uh, the second one, which is reloaded and coming out of it kind of like, confident that the third film would wrap up what I was confused about and then I remember being very disappointed by the third film which is um now what's the third one called revolutions thank you yes 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 revolutions um but I've since come back around to them and there's this like there's this like cliche that I usually don't like that like you're not smarter than the people who make the the work of art that you're criticizing uh which i think is often not true but in this case for me it was like there are things that i didn't understand about those movies and i didn't like them because i was confused by those things um and so i've i've come back to to sort of rewatch them and really enjoy them i don't i don't think they're as good as films as or as movies as as the first matrix but um i think there's just so many interesting ideas in those second uh and third movies that I that I really enjoy going back to and, and sitting with. And I kind of feel the same way about the fourth one, not to sort of give away <laughs> where I might be going with this conversation. I feel like 
My journey with The Matrix ended up being significantly more profound than I ever expected it to be when I first saw it. I was just barely not old enough to see it in movie theaters, but my mother, who is eternally responsible for basically every piece of pop culture that I've ever picked up because she loves going to movies, my father hates it. She brought it home, I think it was still on a VHS tape, back in the the good old days of VHS, and I remember watching it and just having my mind blown. I remember going to see it the the sequels in movie theaters with some friends i remember buying the soundtracks and just discovering all of these music artists that i had never heard of before which ended up leading me down a very interesting industrial metal kick that i never really put down i bought philosophy books that talked about the nature of being the one and unplugging and other things that for my teenage brain was a completely new genre and experience I think that in some ways it, the series was a gateway series for a lot of other science fiction and cyberpunk that I enjoyed. It also uh, retroactively ended up being a factor in my coming out as transgender, which is hilarious because that's sort of what happened to a lot of people who saw the original Matrix and got to know the Wachowskis overall cinematic oeuvre. I feel like that becomes more clear the further you get into their catalog. And so it means that when I found out there was a fourth one coming out, uh, not only did I get excited, I sat down and finally rewatched all of the original three since I had come out. And it hit different in a very positive way, in a way of going, you know, I, I think this has actually done a lot for me in terms of where I started and where I came from. And it meant that... Uh, Re-experiencing that was really fun, and it was a nice little sort of nostalgia walk and a retrospective. So obviously I have a lot of strong feelings and excited feelings about what Resurrections means and what the Wachowskis have done with it. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Well, that's that's awesome. It sounds like we're going to have a pretty positive take on this, but let's... Let's maybe just start with, you know, what jumped out at you with Resurrection specifically? You know, what's, what are the kind of, what's the movie up to? Uh, what did you think was interesting about it? Obviously, this is a very meta movie that is very aware of the circumstances of its own uh, creation and comes at a time that of course, like everything now was affected by the pandemic was affected by bringing new actors into the cast, bringing new characters in. So there's a lot going on, a lot to talk about, but obviously it seems like we all are pretty warm about uh, resurrections, but what do you, where, where should we start? What, what's interesting to you guys? What, one of the things that stood out to me as maybe the, starkest difference between resurrections in the original trilogy was a shift in tone and genre lana wachowski has talked about it as a love story in interviews and one of the things that stood out to me about it was just how funny it was in a way that the original three movies weren't which is something i really appreciated i actually spent a lot of the movie laughing uh i mean especially I, I think the standout moment for this was the montage in which the other game developers in Neo's fake life in this new Matrix as a game developer are brainstorming what 
the Matrix like a sequel should be. And they're all trying to decide what is the Matrix about? And they're just repeating these same ridiculous lines over and over again. That is a very funny, yeah, the sort of focus group, like brainstorm sesh is very funny. And they're obviously mocking the whole enterprise of being forced to make this movie, as well as the typical like corporate approach to franchise filmmaking. Yeah. I think the sequels were especially accused of being overly serious, which is, I don't know, kind of, it's like about the, an apocalyptic future where we're enslaved by artificial intelligence. So there's going to be some built in serious, but yeah, there, there's a lot of, along with that meta commentary, there's, there's a lot of mocking of the current, you know, filmmaking sort of process. Yeah. It, it, this is definitely the funniest of, of the matrix uh, movies. And, and that sequence in particular is, is, is very funny. I also like, the like i guess it's part of that same montage but like all the shots of of um of uh neo like going to the gym and like this sort of just like the day-to-day like the sort of his mundane existence i thought was also kind of funny in, in some ways um the treadmill yeah 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 exactly. he's on a treadmill right yeah the we're all on treadmills <laughs> um yeah, yeah, uh, and you know, as 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 I've already added myself as someone who is old enough to see this in, in in the movie theater. So as someone who like is dealing with impending middle agedness, I sort of felt that treadmill stuff quite a bit. Uh, I I think those first three movies are funnier than we remember. Like whenever I rewatch one of those movies, uh, there's like I find myself laughing at things that I had forgotten about or that I had sort of like I, it, like it's the bits of humor don't stand out in those first three movies i think because they're sort of it's such a bleak world but like there is no spoon has become this sort of meme but i I think that's supposed to be a little bit goofy right like i like i think i think some of that stuff is supposed to be like a little bit funny right oh i think that's fair i mean the oracle is hilarious i love the oracle everything about Mm -hmm. her I kept quoting the Oracle to my students this semester and I was shocked when none of them had ever seen the matrix. And I was like, what are you talking about? We all saw it on TV. And then I was like, Oh yeah, no one watches TV anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I, uh, last night when I was preparing for this, I was rewatching some of the action sequences, particularly from reloaded because I hadn't rewatched the sequels in preparation for the new one. And those in themselves are full of jokes. I mean, there's a bit during the highway chase sequence when Trinity calls up Harold Perrineau's character, I don't remember the name, and is like, oh, I need a download of how to hotwire a motorcycle. Uh, Sorry, what was it? Oh, Link, Link, right. yeah. Yeah, and then the key maker just hands her a key and she's like, oh, you are handy. Like, (laughs) that's a joke, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. they've got jokes, they've got jokes. Re- Reloaded also has my my favorite bad joke uh, of of the series when um, when Neo fights some agents early on in the movie and they like do things he wasn't expecting and he goes oh upgrades upgrades yes upgrades. yes <laughs> it's so good and so bad before we lose track of it I did just want to say I I did like the update of the the treadmill and the like now being in the machine is like wellness culture. Whereas like in 99, it's like absolutely like mind numbing office culture. Like, 
like Neo's life is like miserable. Like he works this job that he's apparently mediocre at. He's like up all night hacking, like trying to find meaning. But in this version, he's like, he's in good shape. Like he's getting his exercise. Like he's eating ramen. He's like having espresso. Of course, it's still like meaningless and he's longing for something deeper. But the update to like the constant wellness culture of like exercising and like going to the coffee shop and like being fit was interesting as opposed to just like being crushed under the heel of like a faceless corporation like now he gets to be you know this famous fancy guy and his boss is a tech bro in a cool suit (laughs) instead of like nameless faceless like boss bureaucrat from the original yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. no it's i i was in like prepping to talk to y'all today i was like trying to imagine the thomas anderson of the first matrix ordering a tiny coffee like he drinks in this movie and that was very funny to me for some reason but yeah I, i think that's part of it is like this sort of like upper middle class existence is is part of this new version of the matrix that he's trapped in since you brought it up eric should we talk about the uh addition of jonathan groff as kind of the new agent smith and uh you know yaya abdul mateen as sort of this new version of morpheus uh as well as some of the other new characters we've got bugs we've got the analyst uh, we've got a whole new um, spate of crew members. What'd you guys think of the either not, you know, there, there's no Hugo Weaving, unfortunately, there's no Lawrence Fishburne, uh, but we have other other actors sort of playing versions of them. And then we have some new characters entirely. Um, what everybody think about those choices? I love them all. I thought they were fantastic. Like, I, I definitely, I miss... Lawrence Fishburne and Hugo Weaving. And I think I saw or heard in some coverage of it that they tried to get Hugo Weaving, but there was a scheduling conflict and that's why they got Jonathan Groff instead. But it doesn't, it doesn't read as a scheduling failure. I think Jonathan Groff is great in the role. I think he's a lot of fun. I think it fits in with this like upgraded new matrix. I mean, there's even the whole plot point of the fact that both trinity and neo are wearing different skins so everyone else sees them as these different people even though we see the original actors playing the roles so i think it fits into this larger storyline the in-universe explanation makes a lot of sense yeah yes yes and i i just really liked i really like jonathan groff i thought he was great I love Morpheus 2.0, especially the new costumes. I feel like it builds into this new, like, this is a new Matrix. Now there isn't this, like, green saturation to everything. There are real colors. I think it builds into the, this is no longer an office drone space. It's this wellness culture that you were describing. I thought all those decisions were great. <laughs> Not the most interesting take necessarily, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> we need we need to like call someone who's who hated the movie just to like bring some tension into this because yeah. Uh I I agree. I and I think I would have loved to have seen uh Fishburne or 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 Weaving. Uh I really like until the end of that post credit sequence, uh I ex- I expected Lawrence Fishburne to show up in some capacity uh besides like the archival footage that's like peppered throughout. I think that the like whether it was him or or Mateen, I I think that the way they brought a version of Morpheus in is is really smart and and interesting and there's something cool about like 
Keanu Reeves like being the author of his own escape in this movie that I think is fun and, and interesting. I love the like ball bearing uh, program in the real world effect that they do uh, in, the, in the real world later on. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's very and, cool. And uh, we haven't brought it up yet, but I would I would like to adopt Sababy and have them live with me. It's I love that little robot. That's all. <laughs> I think I was more of an Octocles fan myself. But honestly, <laughs> I had a, I had a hard time telling. Like Luminate is tiny. I yes. know who Luminate is. Yeah, Luminate I could is not tell apart Sababy and Octocles, well, even though Octocles is the one with a lot of eyes. I'm like, show me one of them. I don't know which one it is. <laughs> I listen. I'm a sucker for a cute robot. Clearly. And this is an interesting thematic aspect of the movie that really picks up on and doubles down on what's going on in revolutions. The idea that humans and programs, at least some humans and some programs can coexist and collaborate um, and work together and have a different kind of culture and society is really interesting. And, there's maybe not to jump ahead in our discussion, but if they are going to be forced at gunpoint to do another sequel, I would love to see more of what's going on in the machine city. And like with these other programs, because this movie, even more than revolutions, which zooms out and kind of shows like the machine city in, in how massive it is when Neo and Trinity have to essentially crash land into it. So Neo can talk to the machine mainframe or whatever. This movie shows like that the matrix is kind of like a, just a tiny corner of what the programs do and what the machines do. And they have their own culture that's evolved because for however many decades now they've been doing their own thing. And humans are just like the power plant, just the batteries that enable them to do that, but they have their own factions and agendas. And this movie alludes to a sort of machine civil war. And I would love to see more, uh, of that and about that if they went in that direction uh, i i just i i really did appreciate that sort of i don't know if update is the right word for it but even the core matrix trilogy is still very kind of nuanced and subtle about the relation between man and machine despite what the reputation of the series may be about you know jacking in and unplugging and trying to distance yourself from technology it doesn't go nearly as hard on that as a lot of people tend to ascribe to it and i feel like resurrections really sort of doubles down on that and makes it clear that it's not just a man versus machine binary dichotomy there's an entire machine culture here that we are still trying to understand that we are still getting to know i would be i would also be very excited to see them do more with that in eventual eventual inevitable sequels well warner brothers has been pretty obsessed with making hbo max series out of their franchise properties (laughs) you know we're gonna get a Dune sort of prequel series. We're going to get various Batman related, Batgirl related series. I feel like there's a cool series that they could do about, you know, some, some subsection of that. Um, I'm going to insert my necessary groan here. Okay. Go for it. Do we have, (laughs) do we have audio for that? (laughs) Oh, I'll just go. uh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The very analog an analog grown, not a digital one. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Whoever's editing this this episode should isolate that audio and just like we can pop it in the rest of the season whenever we need. When, whenever we need to play. Uh, it. Yeah. Well, oh, I would love that. I would to, love that. To, I mean, and 
fault is not the right word, but like the matrix was one of the first big properties to kind of experiment with like cross genre kind of storytelling. Right. Uh, we've talked about the sequels. Uh, I think Josh, you mentioned the, the video games, which one of which included like 45 minutes of um, footage filmed by the Wachowskis featuring characters from the second movie. There was also the animatrix, uh, which is currently streaming on HBO, uh, HBO max, uh, not HBO go, which is the old one that like, actually some of that does detail some of that backstory of the robot man war and like brings in some of the complexities of that. So like, if it happens to the Matrix, it's like maybe something the Matrix brought on itself. I don't know. I think that's true. Also, I'm definitely watching the Animatrix shortly. I had no idea it was on HBO Max. I'm really excited about that. Oh, it rules. Yeah, the Animatrix yeah. rules. That's what I've heard. I remember, like, I, of course, listened to the Blank Check episode about it and was like, oh, my God, all of this sounds amazing. Even though, as I think that, I am like... Uh, new Animatrix-esque things? Kill me now. <laughs> I, do, I, I do suspect that the Animatrix was made with more care and with more concern for the creator's input than whatever might come next, if that makes sense. Uh, given that one of the Weskowskis clearly has wants no part of it, and the other is like dropping hints that she doesn't really want it either into the movie itself. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see, like, Maybe they don't care because of the pandemic and because they streamed it, but it hasn't done that great at the box office. So who knows uh, how relentless the desire for new Matrix content is going to be. The thing about the Animatrix is like, it's very weird and it's very artistic. And it wasn't like, oh, you should make an anthology anime series between now and the time that the live action sequel comes out. It was, I feel like it was more they wanted to, they had so many ideas about the world that they only hint at in the original, that it's a very natural, there's a lot of cool ideas there. It wasn't like a forced thing of like, oh, you know what's huge? You know what American kids love? Anime. You should make an anime anthology series. Yeah. It strikes me more as, (laughs) again, to bring back up Disney+, Plus, more of a Star Wars Visions than, say, a Book of Boba Fett. And I'm definitely far more interested in one of those than the other, even though, unlike Star Wars Visions, it was centered on the original creators. But a similar, let's elaborate some interesting ideas. Yeah, agreed. That kind of gets us to, I mean, we've already sort of talked about the, the, overall meta commentary of the movie and the sort of terms of its own making and and the explicit name check of warner brothers uh but was there anything else anybody wanted to say about that sort of you know how they approach the idea of what made the original matrix good and how that what they tried to do or or not do in this movie like Obviously, there's that great focus group sort of brainstorm scene that's very funny where they're making fun of the whole thing. But what did they actually do with the movie in response to the fact that they're trying to make it on their own terms instead of it being taken away from them and given to, you know, some other 
uh, team to make their own version of it? How did they sort of, um, and we could also talk a little bit about the fact that this movie is maybe more explicit about its themes, more direct. I don't know, Lee, maybe do you want to talk a little bit about that, how the movie was appropriated by just overall <laughs> internet jerks and and the idea of the red pill sort of being taken to mean something that the Wachowskis did not feel like it meant making this as a result making this movie in reaction a lot more explicit than uh some of the subtlety of the trilogy although like we said the themes are kind of there I I do think that that was a major factor in sort of that that doubling down and that more explicit nature of the theme, which is interesting because there are a lot of creators out there whose works are like sort of co-opted or dragged away from them by the alt-right and by people who are interested in not the actual message of what it is, but this sort of loud image that they can project onto themselves, which is what I feel like a lot of that red pill movement was, is they just completely ignored the entire purpose of it and went, this sounds cool. And we're going to make it sound cooler by thinking that we're badasses. And it's just explicitly the metaphor of the red pill, blue thing, blue pill thing. It's explicitly about the transition journey of trans feminine and trans women, because red pills are estradiol. It is what that hormone replacement therapy looked like in the 90s. And so you hear that and then you look at it in the context of all of these like alt-right bros going oh i'm red-pilled i'm i'm not jacked into society it's like you're you actually do not know what you were talking about and it's funny because and the, the wachowskis have especially lana have explicitly mentioned this they've said no no that this is what we meant you're co-opting something you do not understand you don't actually want this i feel like making this movie with slightly more explicit themes with you know calling back to the way that they approach the movies and then sort of meta commenting on it and looking at it and going, it's good to highlight how much this movie has been kind of corporatized and devalued from its original meaning for them to then say, okay, we're going to have to double down. We're going to have to go a little harder on this. So people know it's like, this is an explicitly revolutionary and queer movie. We're not trying to align ourselves with any kind of, alt-right movement i think that's really important and i think that they managed to handle it in a way that you know the movie was entertaining it didn't feel preachy but at the same time that message still felt pretty strong yeah lee could you elaborate a little bit on like moments where it was more explicit in that way like one of the things that stood out to me was like there's that important scene in in the original movie that conflict with smith that final fight where neo at one point says like my name is Neo after constantly being called Thomas Anderson. And it seems this kind of like calling out dead naming moment in the trans metaphor. It absolutely is. And as I said, I rewatched the movies recently and I hadn't done it since I came out. That moment was so powerful for me as someone who has had a lot of experience with people trying or failing to use the correct name for me. It's the sort of thing that is very powerful in and of itself regardless of the metaphor or the allegory. And I think that's what makes it work as well as it does, because all of us want to be called by the correct name. That isn't just a trans experience. It feels bad if someone is using a name that you don't like or a name that you're not comfortable with. 
it becomes a very powerful allegory for the trans experience because of the nature of the matrix and sort of being able to function as your idealized self, but then having something, in this case, Smith and the machines and society dragging you back and trying to pull you away from that and insisting not just on calling you by your name, but in a very formalized, like, authority figure kind of way, the way that, you know, Agent Smith could have just called him Thomas. He always calls him Mr. Anderson. It's a very specific, I am an authority over you kind of situation. And so it means that for Neo to fight back and say, that is not my name. You don't have that kind of control over me. It's not only very powerful just in general, but it's very powerful for people who are trying to actually assert their names and claim who they are as people. And so it means that they end up with a metaphor that applies not just for for trans folks, but is very much rooted in the transgender experience. And of course, in this one, he calls him Tom, right? Mm -hmm. He starts calling him Tom. And he's very like, they're kind of frenemies or like, you know, they have have some uneasy alliance. And Jonathan Groff, like we said, is great at, at having that big tech bro energy, but being like, Tom, you know, like, we have we're, we can be on the same page here. I, I we do need to shout out one of the funniest tweets of all time, which is May seventeenth, twenty twenty. Elon Musk tweets, "Take the red pill." Ivanka Trump quote tweets, "Taken!" Exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Lily Wachowski replies, "Fuck both of you." Very like, <laughs> obviously, it sort of blows up and and gets a lot of attention. Uh, but just a microcosm of that idea of like, and of course. As people who teach English to mostly first-year students, we spend a lot of time with ambiguity and metaphor and nuance and interpretation. And when you create something, especially something with any degree of interest and sophistication, there's going to be nuance and, and ambiguity. And that's what makes art so fun and interesting, but it also allows for people to read against the grain or misinterpret or avoid the context of the larger work even if even if we have our doubts about you know whether or not the author is dead or whether or not creators have like the the final say on their words even just people not doing their interpretive due diligence and just just seizing on things but that's the power of a great metaphor like the red pill and the blue pill this idea of a choice so anyone who who wants to come along and say like I am enlightened. I see the hidden power structures. Uh, that was a natural metaphor for them to gravitate to, even if their politics were regressive or counter to the politics of the of the original movies. Could I jump in with a quick Lega sequel note there? Because you drew something, or you drew attention to something that I think is central to what a Lega sequel is. It seems to appear in every single one, but. It's something that The Matrix Resurrections uniquely pulls off. I feel like one of the things that legacy sequels do is they make the classic villains of the original good. They like make them into protagonists or allies. They make this figure for whom fans feel a lot of nostalgia, this somewhat different character in a way that enables them to just be celebrated. So... I I feel like the classic example is the Jurassic World movies in which now the T-Rex is no longer the greatest threat that the humans are facing. Instead, the T-Rex shows up at the end of every movie and kills the bad new dinosaur 
and then roars in a recreation of the original movie. And we get to celebrate, yeah, T-Rexes are cool. Jurassic Park was a great movie. And in this one, I feel like there's a version of that in which Smith is now this, this uneasy ally, as you say. But it actually pulls it off story-wise and is actually really compelling. It's one of the parts I really loved. I don't know. I feel like this movie stands out among Lego sequels as breaking new ground, as actually being interesting and worthwhile. I'm, I'm curious if other people feel similarly. It's very interesting to me that Spider-Man No Way Home and this came out right at the same time. And I hadn't thought about that, Eric, about reclaiming the villains, because that's what, well, I can maybe spoilers for Spider-Man if you haven't seen it. But they obviously bring back these villains and a big part of the plot is like trying to um, redeem them or rehabilitate them or cure them. So that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But. I think you're right that Resurrections, because it's commenting on the very fact of being a legacy sequel, is a lot more interesting than something like Ghostbusters Afterlife or, um, you know, a lot of these other things that are that are floating around. Certainly then Rise of Skywalker, which we have <laughs> torn to shreds on a previous episode of this pod. Yeah, um, it's, it's a Last Jedi-esque legacy sequel in that. It has commentary. It's interesting. It's worthwhile. Also, it's controversial because people are bad fans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and you get um, this movie is like we haven't even really said this movie is like Neo is not just going to come in and, and wipe everyone out with his powers, although he does use powers. It's this idea of him. So actually, just one small thing about Rise of Skywalker this movie takes a really dumb thing from Rise of Skywalker and makes it interesting, which is that idea of the dyad in the Force between Kylo and Rey, which I thought was dumb and made no sense. And it just comes out of nowhere and and is like this just weird Force thing that like no one's ever heard of. This movie actually is like Neo and Trinity are a dyad. They're two halves of a whole. They're inseparable. Uh, their powers come from their love for each other. Neo can't be Neo without Trinity. And of course, even though Neo is explicitly the one in the previous movies, we also know that he's doesn't act the way the one is supposed to act because the sequels, the biggest, most interesting thing the sequels do is like the one itself, the prophecy itself was built into the system. It was a way of channeling the humans in a particular direction so that they could be better controlled even when they escape from the matrix. But Neo, as this movie explicitly says, is an anomaly of anomalies. He's not in love with humanity in a general sense. He's in love with Trinity in a specific sense. That's happens at the end of reloaded. And you get in the first movie, it gets a little lost because at the end of the movie, Neo, you know, Smith shoots him. He comes back to life. He goes into God mode. But before that, you do you get this reverse Sleeping Beauty where it's Trinity bringing Neo back, right? By being like the Oracle said, I would fall in love with the one and kissing him while the Sentinels are like melting their ship. That's a really interesting counterintuitive moment uh, that they're playing around with there. It gets a little lost because then Neo does ascend to the one and it can feel like Trinity is just, 
you know, a mere mortal or whatever, but all the way through, they're bringing each other back to life. And, and this movie makes that really clear and explicit. And they, at the end, like they both fly and they both have powers in this new matrix and they're sort of a tag team. And that's very, very similar to, um, but in a cool way, this idea of this connection between Ray and Kylo that is somehow, you know, rooted in the force itself or whatever. But yeah, I, I think that rubbed pe- some people the wrong way because what they wanted to see, much like with The Last Jedi, they just wanted to see Luke Skywalker kill everyone. And in this, they just want to see like the old Neo who, whatever, is a god or, or is the one. I think that's all dead on. I didn't even realize that. But yeah, one of my favorite parts <laughs> of Matrix Resurrections is, yes, nearly identical to maybe my second least favorite part of my least favorite movie of all time. <laughs> Well, and I mean, throughout that, those new Star Wars movies, Kylo Ren is, is another example of this, like, what if we took the villain of the thing that you love and made it, made that character sort of sympathetic in some way, right? Like, like Kylo Ren worships Darth Vader, the major villain of three and three, two and three quarters of the original Star Wars movies, right? And, but like, what if, what if he, what if it was complicated, right? What if like, we didn't know if that's what he wanted to do? So yeah, uh, I, I I love that reading of of the end of Matrix Resurrection as sort of like rethinking that idea, which was squandered at the end of a very messy movie, uh, at the end of a trilogy that never really quite knew where it was going. But yeah, I, I think the big difference between this movie and a lot of the other Lego sequels is that this this movie is like examining that nostalgia, right? And even like yes, like yeah, when I think of Lego sequels, I think of like that there's that scene in Jurassic world where like they stumble on props from the first movie that they're all like dusty. <laughs> right. And that was, I, if I remember right, that was the first trailer of that new ghostbusters movie is they like, they like take a cover off of uh, the, the Ecto one, the car that they drive around those first two movies. in, right. And it's just, it's such like a cheap, a cheap thing. And I think that it's, it's interesting to me in this new matrix movie, how often they just like, flash clips of those original movies across the screen and it's like it's i don't know it's it's almost provocative like oh this is what you want right here's a little snippet of it right here's the original morpheus right holding a pill in each hand right as you're watching the new morpheus kind of poke fun at this this sequence and sort of what that what thinking about that sequence is doing to your brain which i think is all really interesting and sort of fun to sit with yeah i think people have come to or some some of us have come to resent how winky Spider-Man again No Way Home is a good example. There's there are some genuinely funny moments, but there's also a lot of a lot of it is just predicated on very explicit winks about the characters in the other movies and how you felt. And Resurrections is just like we're just going to splice these old clips in. I think one in part of the film, the early part of the film, they just serve as Neo's like unconscious memories, right? Like there's Groff's uh, agent Smith has that line where it's like, what did you say? Like the first time we met, we had the chemistry of a FBI interrogation and it cuts to that clip from the first movie of Smith, like interrogating Neo and his like mouth sealing up. And then of course it also does emphasize the different aesthetics of the original movie or the earlier movies to this movie and it serves as like these memories we have. Whereas with a lot of these other legacy sequels, it's in, especially in the dialogue. I mean, you get that here too. You get like stuff like bugs saying, what's up doc. And you get 
you know, Sati's character reading Alice in Wonderland and you get the white rabbit tattoo and all that stuff. So it's all in there, but it's definitely a little more ironic and it's less like just, Oh, you're going to laugh at this and a little more like, Oh, you expect us to do this. I wonder why you expect us to just feed you so much nostalgia. It's they, they, they go for the, uh, the, the, the TV tropes lampshading. They, they hang a little thing on it. It's not just that they're referencing it. They're saying, you expect us to reference this. We're going to do it, but we're going to make it very obvious that we are doing it because you expect us to do it. And it's sort of <clears throat> snake eating its own tail feeds into itself like that. Right. We we, we jumped past it earlier, uh, but I just I just want to say that I think Bugs is the best. That's the spinoff that I want. Yeah. Yeah. Bugs is great. I, I love her outfits. Yes. <laughs> it, like I. I one thing I love is just like how many differences there are between this and the original movies and like bugs never shows up in head to toe PVC. Like she always has these like cool kind of like big pants and mm-hmm. she's occasionally wearing suspenders. I, I I don't know. I just like, like it's adjacent, but it's different. Mm-hmm. And Oh my God, how hard is that movie makers? <laughs> <laughs> I like the sort of it embedded, like, subtle narrative about when a woman of color becomes a leader and then has to mentor a younger woman of color who has their own same renegade streak so we get Niobe as the general it's it's she's the one who who awakens bugs like gives her the the pills and whatever and you get that this great thing of like in the earlier movies Niobe is the one who is like I'm going to pilot this ship. Like we're going through this like mechanical line. Like nobody tells me what to do, whatever. Like I'm a badass pilot. And now she's like a little more conservative and she's trying to keep this entire city safe. And she's like, not that happy to see Neo. Cause when Neo shows up, usually it means like war with the machines and bugs is like the young one. Who's like, no, like we don't care about strawberries. Like we want to free minds. Like we want to like do some big revolutionary stuff. And it's just a great, like, just within this movie is a nice little story of how as you age, certain things become harder. You see things differently. You try to mentor, like, you have a protege who's a lot like you used to be. And you now look at things different. And it's like she now thinks Bugs is, like, a little too reckless. And um, it's very much something the young Niobe would have been accused of by the council or whatever by Cornell West and his compatriots in the, in the earlier movies. And I just love that dynamic. And yeah, any, any more bugs content they, they want to throw our way. I'm, I'm good with that. Also, just to say that uh, Jessica Henwick who plays her is the silver lining of the various Netflix Marvel shows that she was in like iron fist and defenders, because she was often, her and Rosario Dawson were often the only people who could act in a room of people who could not act and uh, <laughs> were sort of the saving grace of those very hit or miss shows. Um, yeah, she's great. Well, I I look forward to seeing all of those people, some of whom can act and some of whom can't back in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, apparently. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kingpin, Wil- Wilton Fisk. Vincent D'Onofrio is fine. I mean, he's obviously great, but yeah, some of those other folks, less so. <laughs> Do we want to take a second to rave about uh, Carrie Ann Moss? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Just the best. 
it's necessary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but one of my only complaints about this movie is I would have liked to have spent more time with her because I think her red pill, blue pill conflicts, like her needing to awaken from this family scenario in which she is trapped would have been really compelling would have been like a little book called the awakening i think it would have been really <laughs> interesting if we could have seen more of it yeah it, and josh what you were saying about the naobi bugs dynamic it like it dovetails interestingly with neo and trinity before they are you know before they are out of the matrix right that sort of like they have a different approach to the world and yeah like the use of the family there to to keep her in yeah it's I mean, she's barely in the first hour, hour, 20 minutes of the movie. Like, she's barely there, but like, she's so good that she does a lot with what little bit she has, I think. And you can kind of see how quickly, like, the Trinity comes out of the Tiffany, which is a fun. <laughs> Tiffany and Chad is, is great. <laughs> I love that. It's, yeah, she does, such, she does a great job with, like, a kind of an underwritten part, maybe, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think if you can have one complaint about the movie's pacing it's that it takes them a long time doing the two separate extraction missions just sort of forces you into a particular structure that's going to take a long time to play out i do love how the way that the analyst uh, and she she says this at the end she like you know beats him up a few times and like the last time she's like that's for using children and Every time they want to recall her to her blue pill state, it's like something has happened to her kids. And it's a really great commentary on just like the nuclear family and certain norms about femininity and and motherhood. And she has in the coffee date that they let her and Neo have briefly. She's like, I remember wanting kids, but was I just programmed to want kids? And the, the, Two, the kids they've cast for her are just like so whiny and obnoxious <laughs> and it's all that like oh we've got to get them to soccer practice yeah. kind of stuff uh, which is very funny but I do think they could have another way of doing this movie would have been to condense some of that and to have Neo and Trinity's extraction to happen closer together and, and give her a little more screen time um, but yeah, there was like a New York Times profile of Carrie Ann Moss thinking about like getting back into this role 20 years later and not wanting to uh, like not forcing herself to try to be who she was back then or try to like be young Trinity. And it's like she's clearly very comfortable with herself and really confident and like she's just incredibly compelling on screen um, the whole time. Yeah, it, it would be it would be interesting to see like the like. I don't know that the video game would be compelling, but if the, if they were going to film 40 more minutes of footage for something, it'd be interesting to see sort of like Tiffany's life in the Matrix other than when she, because I don't think we see her except in the coffee shop, right? Like right. it's always like filtered through Neo's perspective. Yeah, yeah. We, we only see her coming into his orbit and then when, when he goes to the motorcycle shop. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay, right. It is, yeah, the motorcycle shop. But it, it, I think it could be just as funny as the stuff with, with Neo building the game just to like see her taking the kids to soccer practice and, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining a heavy rain S game where you need to like press buttons to be like, <laughs> Oh no, go to the hospital, like get that Lego out of your youngest nose. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Lego out the nose. I was the, I think the last time it happens, the, the Chad comes in 
to the coffee shop and says that one of them broke their arm after getting hit by a car chasing after you. Like, yes, it's, it's yes. her fault that her yes. son is now in a cast, which is so horrific. I missed that line. I want to rewatch it now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, handsome, handsome Chad. It's that it's that like when when Neo makes the deal with the analyst uh, to try to convince her. That's like the last kind of tug at the heartstrings to try to bring her back. And it gets at it gets at what you were saying about naming Lee, right? It's they've this idea of calling her Tiffany. And the analyst is interesting. We haven't talked that much about Neil Patrick Harris's performance. It seems like the analyst, this is he's replaced the architect. He's kind of like the architect and the oracle because he his approach is also oriented around human psychology. And he seems to understand that desire and fear are what power humans. And he's, he's pretty correct about that. But he makes this kind of fatal mistake, which is that he does, he's trying to fit Trinity into this Tiffany mold. And that's the thing that sets her off is like, stop calling me that. I hate that name. That's not who I am. And so ironically, like the, the guilt of, of being a mother is like very effective but the fact that her handsome husband calls her the wrong name is what actually allows her to like recognize herself and recognize Neo. And like, it's very interesting how the analyst, like in a, in certain ways seems to be a very astute observer of what people want and how we think, but in other ways is missing some core things about, you know, whatever human desire for liberation or authenticity or selfhood. Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about these movies that I didn't like. I I said at the beginning of the episode that like I wasn't smart enough to write, to appreciate things about the the original two sequels, and like I I like that their machines or their their sentience are fallible, and I I think that's really interesting. And it was confusing to me I think initially because I was used to like the Terminator movies, right, where the like the machines are sentient, but they're sentient in the sense that like they are going to murder humans at any cause. Right. And here there's like different competing interests. And that's definitely one of the analysts mistake, but there's another mistake. Like when they're planning the Trinity rescue mission, the extraction mission, somebody says, well, why doesn't he just, why doesn't he just kill Trinity? And it's like the, the implication is basically that like his position of power is tenuous and it's dependent on him continuing to like break records in energy production or whatever. This doesn't quite make sense, but it seems to be that there are like sentience above the, the analysts who, yeah, yeah, this, that's right. That's right. The suits who could like, and so it's like his own ambition that is like keeping him on this plan longer than he should be on this plan. Because if he just like wipes out Trinity, then this is no longer an issue and he can like reset the matrix into something else. It right? just won't work as well. Right. It's right. What's right. great is that this movie puts the analyst in the position of Thomas Anderson from the first movie. Like he has corporate overlords, like right, the machine, yes. <laughs> the programs have corporate overlords. There are the yes. head honchos in the machine cities are like, I mean, it, he's basically like the CEO of Georgia power or whatever. Right. It's like, right. We need more electricity. <laughs> like, like we're, we're churning through power over here. Because the actual, whatever they are, like, we don't know anything about how the machines govern themselves, but whoever is at the top, they have a lot to think about, right? Civil wars and like all kinds of policy areas and cultural things. 
he's just in charge of like running the matrix, making it run, you know, like, yeah, break those productivity records. And the way he's found to do that is this like Neo and Trinity, like being close, but not too close. And it's an inherently risky strategy, right? Because they end up getting too close. They end up like once they touch, you know, there's an explosion and they're able to free themselves. But his whole thing is like, if he does kill her, he's back to square one. He's got to find another way to generate that much power. So he's, he himself is in a, a tricky situation. Yeah. He's not like omnipotent in any way. This is a bit of a departure in terms of topic, but I just remembered that we haven't mentioned the Merovingian yet, who was <laughs> maybe my favorite moment of oh nostalgia. Oh <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. I just love that he was like he looked crazy. He was shouting stuff I couldn't understand until I watched it on HBO Max with subtitles, <laughs> and like everyone else was ignoring him. <laughs> it was great. I love that so much. <laughs> the Merv is a survivor. Absolutely. Yeah, this movie rules. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have other thoughts? Anything yeah. else that we have? Anybody want to wrap, wrap us up with anything? I guess I can share something, even though we're at an hour and I <laughs> did not want the episode to go so long, even though we said so many things that I love. Thank you all for all that. I was just thinking of, I'm thinking about the parts of this movie that are controversial, I guess. And a lot of this is secondhand because I'm very little online. So I think I miss out on a lot of these conversations. But From what I hear, one of the things that puts people off of this movie, and it's the same thing that like put a lot of people off of The Last Jedi, is that they feel insulted by it. Like they feel like it is like purposefully not giving them what they want and like telling them they're wrong to want that. Is that accurate? Is that what other people have heard or witnessed? Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, like, so this is a bit of a paradox for me to say, given that my dissertation research or or my book manuscript research, I guess I'm supposed to say now, is about (laughs) how novels characterize their own readers. But what is up with people's obsession with what the pop culture they consume says about them? Like, I don't understand why that is such a prominent part of people's responses. (sighs) Like, what do you make of that? Because I think it's a really weird sight of people's anger at like a sequels yeah i feel like i i spend a lot of time in fandom circles mostly sort of at a distance now because that that is sort of a a toxic little little rabbit hole that is dangerous to dive down in any context and i think that i mean it obviously was very much a thing before COVID 19 but a lot of the really sort of pointed and extreme versions of it seem to have become a lot more so since everybody spent more time online and it means that the things that would normally just be a small part of our identity which is you know the shows we watch and the games we play and the movies we enjoy are becoming rapidly just sort of everything we engage with because everything we're doing is online and so it means that we end up sort of ascribing a level of morality to it and assigning a level of our personality to it that maybe otherwise would not be as common and so i don't have any real answers this is definitely several (laughs) books length worth of projects for multiple scholars in multiple fields but i definitely agree that a lot of the backlash that comes from both this and other 
pop culture phenomenon, it does feel very much like there's a moralistic ascribing of, you know, if you like something, then that means you approve of it or you are a good person. And if you do not like this same thing, then you think that I am a bad person. And it sort of ends up boiling everything down to that very sort of binaristic dyad, that good and evil, I am right and you are wrong. And it leads to absolute <laughs> chaos. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't have an answer, Eric, to your, to your question, which I think is a, is a great question. I, but like to come at it kind of sideways, one of the things that's, so I, I don't know that, that I find sort of strange about that response to this movie is I don't think this movie is about fans of, of a, of a project like the Matrix, I think it's about creators. I think it's about like what it's like to try to make this more than it is about, you know, us as people who might watch it. And I think like down to the, down to the end of the movie, which we haven't, we talked a little bit about Trinity, like beating up the analysts and saying, you know, this last one's for the children as for using children. But like the ultimate, like if, if we think about, the analyst as like the stand-in for the suits who want to lock Neo into making sequels to the Matrix trilogy of video games, right? Then I think it's like, it's possible to read that ending as like a statement of, you know, like using the tools of Warner Brothers, since they named them by name, right? To make challenging, you know, works of, of creative fiction, right? And I, it's so weird to me I can't imagine watching this movie and thinking that it's about viewers. Uh, I think it's much more about like the corporate approach to creating things for viewers uh, and sort of like whether it's possible to make a sort of personal work of fiction within those systems. Yeah, I agree with you on that. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but that was my last thought. That's a question that I want to keep thinking about. I, I agree with you, Lee, that <laughs> it is a very difficult question to answer that will take yeah. many, many people. But I, I, I think that's where my current, like, looking forward to future pop culture artifacts, like, that's something I want to keep looking into. Also, the fact that people seem to really struggle to distinguish between what a character says and what a text says. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you all. This has been a very fun and riveting and um, not especially divisive conversation about a movie <laughs> that we all thought was pretty terrific and apparently <laughs> highly recommend that you check out. Yeah, I guess we wouldn't create much power. There isn't enough division and longing and fear. <laughs> yes, but, you know, the, the hint it's at true. the end yeah. of, of that movie that's so fun is like, you know, paint the sky with rainbows or whatever is like, the thing the machines haven't tried is actually a matrix where people can thrive and like do what they want to do. And like, that's kind of the interesting, like a utopian imagination instead of a dystopian one. The architect says something in Reloaded about how like he did try a perfect world, but the human mind rejected it. But it seemed like that was because it was more artificial and people realized it wasn't real and they kept trying to wake up. Yeah. In any case, this is, this has um, brought out our more utopian side, perhaps, than most viewers. But uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, have a good one. Yeah. Thanks, y'all.